Inside a rough and ruthless newsroom, thousands of stories fight for the spotlight. Only a few survive past their 15 minutes of fame. So what makes for a good headline? And what makes for a buried byline? Join us, two former TV news producers, as we dig up stories that never got the recognition or justice they deserve. This is Buried Bylines. Welcome to the first episode of Buried Bylines. It's a new true crime podcast. I'm Megan DeLucine. And I'm Mallory Wilson. We are two former television news producers who spent years working together covering everyday true crime cases. And we have seen it all, from decades-old cold cases to missing persons reports and murder trials. Megan and I worked the graveyard shift together, writing countless stories for the people of central Indiana. Within the last year, we both recently left our jobs in television, but there are some things about this business that never really leave you. We both have always been interested in true crime. We listen to podcasts, watch documentaries. It's actually how we first bonded. Hey, TCO. But through our work in local news and covering quote unquote real crimes, it really highlighted the fact that these are real people with real families. And looking back, it's crazy to think that we as TV news producers played a role in how certain cases were covered and the amount of attention they got. Even as journalists and members of the media, we struggled to understand why some cases seemed to blow up, getting nationwide attention, while so many others got buried and forgotten. We want to use this platform to talk about some of the most interesting cases we've covered that you probably have never heard of. In this podcast, we'll present the lesser-known stories and the so-called famous cases that stole the spotlight, but... All of these cases deserve attention, and all of these cases deserve justice. For our first episode, we'll be covering two major cases that occupied our time in Indianapolis. Yeah, and I guess I am going to start us off a lofty, lofty task with our first case. Um, She's meaty. (laughs) <laughs> she she is uh, meaty to say the least so it is it is long there's a lot of details that we want to touch on and I'm just gonna kind of dive in so this case took the national spotlight almost instantaneously I'm gonna be talking about the murders of two young girls in Delphi Indiana so this is the case of Abby Williams and Liberty German so I don't know I know (laughs) I don't know about you Megan but this was one of the first major cases I ever covered as a student journalist so I was still in school when you were Yes, it was like my last semester at Ball State. I like remember all of it happening and we were covering it in the student newsroom. When I got to Indy for an actual real news job, we obviously kept covering it the Mm -hmm. entire time that I was there. And the crazy thing about this case is that there are so many twists and turns. And not only that, but the public is brought along every step of the way. Uh, So yeah, Yeah, it was crazy. (laughs) I remember, so that was probably one of the first big major cases that I experienced in the newsroom. So I was working the assignment desk at the time and I remember the day before it happened and I know you're going to talk about this, but they went missing and we called up to Delphi and they're like, oh, it's no big deal. They're, they had the day off school. They're probably just at somebody's house. It'll be fine. And then the next day, 
that came out that they were found in. It was nuts. And I was like, oh my God. So I'm really excited yeah. for you to cover this because it really was one of the it's, first things that kind of sucked me in. Oh yeah. It's, I think talking about like those cases that stay with you, I think the amount of stories that I wrote, even when I was researching this mm-hmm. and write, writing it all out in my head, I was like listing off. I'm like, okay, this happened, this happened. But then when I was researching, there were things that I even forgot happened. There's just crazy. so much. It's there was so like crazy. so many different tangents. I, I got lost in a rabbit hole on the Reddit page, which in itself <laughs> is a problem. But it's, I mean, I was Don't like hungry trust for all that info. The Reddit page. <laughs> not the reddit trust the reddit page by the reddit page all right i will stop talking and let you get into it yes let's jump in so um right now this case is insanely active um so within the last few months an arrest was actually made and we're gonna get into that way down the line so (laughs) let's take it back to the very beginning when everything happened february 13th 2017 Anyone who was in central Indiana that day knows how unseasonably warm it was. It was the middle of February, but it was so warm. And on this day, Abby and Libby happened to have the day off from school. Wasn't it like a snow day or a makeup snow day? Like they didn't take a snow day? Okay. Yeah, they had they had like some extra days, like a professional development, something like that. Right, right. So they had the day off of school, yes. and the girls decided to go to the Monon High Bridge Trail and spend some time out there. And just to give you guys some context about this trail and the area, this is actually a landmark for Delphi. So Delphi is a pretty small town. It's only I think less than three thousand people live in Delphi, Whoa. and I didn't I know, know it was that small. Yeah, I think it was from the 2020 census. There were okay. less less than 3,000 people. So this bridge was built in the late 1800s. It's, this is crazy. It's 63 feet tall above the water. What? I know. And they and- just let children walk on it? <laughs> well, not always. So at well, first- Okay, but nobody's out there being like, don't walk on it sorry I'm getting ahead of myself but I'm like it's okay it's okay I would have been the dumb bitch that walked over it but you know that's kind of dangerous I know and it was actually it was like a thing so obviously at first when the bridge was built it -hmm. was for trains and it would travel over the creek and do shipments and deliveries and stuff but in the like 1980s it Mm -hmm. was abandoned and so it just became a place people would go to like, take wedding pictures or senior pictures or go walk on. And I mean, if you look up pictures of like the state of this bridge now, I would be terrified to walk. There's no floor, right? There's the. It's like the, just the like uh, tim- timbers. What's it called? The the little pieces of wood that go across. They Planks. literally. The planks look like, like they're hold, they're holding on for dear life. They right. are like they are. T- it's like terrifying. But no. you know, 
the girls, they're they're 13 and 14. It's a fun thing for them to do. Like I said, Delphi is really small. There's not mm-hmm. a ton to do there. And this was like a place that people went to hang out. Right. So they go to like take a walk on this trail, snap some pictures on the bridge. Um, the girls were dropped off around 1 p.m. And they were set to be picked up later that evening by a family member. Mm-hmm. But when the time came to meet up and go home, Libby didn't answer her phone. And like I said, these girls were still pretty young. So it was totally natural for their families to be a little concerned. And as time ticked on with like no answers from Abby or Libby, that concern quickly turned to panic. And the family members contacted the police and asked the public for their help to search like along the trails to see if maybe they were hiding a lot of there was a lot of concern that like they might have fallen and gotten right because they're in the woods yeah had no way to like contact anyone so they they like set off on this search party and I mean I'm talking like police fire crews dozens of people already stressed I know already stressed and I know what happens dozens of people are out there that very evening to Mm -hmm. to try searching and the Carroll County Sheriff's Department even tried pinging the girls phones but they had no success and the sheriff said that when they do something like that, when they ping a phone and they they can't find a location, that means the phone is either dead or turned off. Right. So eventually it got too late and too dark to continue the search. So around midnight, everyone was sent home, including police and fire crews. The very next morning, it picked back up. They like right. it was like they woke up, they were right back out there yeah. searching. And around 2 p.m. on February 14th, Valentine's Day, two bodies were discovered in an area along Deer Creek just east of the Monon High Bridge. And at first, Indiana State Police would not identify the bodies as Abby and Libby. They held a press conference to announce that the that two bodies were found and that search efforts for the girls were, quote, scaled back. Okay. <laughs> Tell me you found the bodies without telling me you found the bodies. Precisely. So, and like exactly where your brain went, that is where every single person like in Delphi, Mm -hmm. their brain went. Like people in the community jumped to their own conclusions and it did not take long for police to confirm their worst fears. Right. This is when the lid just gets blown off of this case and it was wild it I mean it instantaneously became a media frenzy Mm -hmm. um February 15th 2017 police confirmed the bodies found were Abby and Libby right are you ready are you ready for this I'm scared but go ahead (laughs) four hours after they identified the bodies to the public Police revealed that they found Libby's phone and they released a picture. I didn't know it was that soon. Four hours. (gasps) That's like unheard of. Yeah. A picture that she took of a man walking toward her on the Monon High Bridge. 
good for her. I mean, that's what I was thinking. I said, when I, I remember when I first like saw the picture and that I heard that I was like shocked and also impressed that like a 14 year old would have right. the wherewithal to take out her phone and take a yeah. picture of this guy. Like I, I remember being her age and even being around guys or like older people yeah, and yeah. it would it would like make me uncomfortable or if I thought someone was but like, we didn't have phones then really I mean that could take not pictures like, like yeah that. not like this but like so, I'll do that now like if I'm at a gas station or like the store and I get bad vibes I'll just take a picture of a license plate like just in case yeah <laughs> and then oh, I'm like, yeah that's like <laughs> it's like ingrained in our brains now but like when I was 14 I definitely wasn't that's true in- thinking that way yeah you're just like oh so, it's gonna be fine it's fine so it doesn't stop there oh no <laughs> a week later after this picture was released a week later on february 22nd investigators released a haunting audio clip taken from libby's phone the day of the murders and at this point the investigation had grown so large that the FBI were involved. Right. This is a week later. The so FBI they jumped in pretty quick. Yes. The FBI is already involved. Investigators say the audio came from a video that Libby took of the man who was following them. And that's when I, that's when, when they said that, I remember it came out and I was like, that's probably a screenshot of the video, the guy, the picture that they oh, yeah. put out. Because yeah, I was like, the- it looks like he's walking. And then they were like, here's audio. And I was like, okay, that means there's video or it's in her pocket or something. Yeah. Well, I have a visceral memory of listening to this audio clip for the first time. And I, I'm i going to play it for you right now so that you can like hear what the audio clip was. Okay. So you can hear a man say something to the effect of down the hill, mm-hmm. which is it's part scary. of my, part of my French spooky as fuck. That it's is spooky. like yeah. the most haunting thing. And police released this audio clip with the hopes that someone would hear it and be able to identify the man by his voice. I so don't know if I could do that. I I surely could unless not. they have like a like a really telling voice like I could probably if you if I heard a clip of you talking I could probably that's tell fair. it but like if my dad was like he just sounds like a midwestern man like I don't know <laughs> but I mean you got to do what you got to do and whatever evidence you have you have to yeah and that's and that's kind of what they were going for I mean they they had this audio clip they were like we're gonna release a portion of it see if anybody can like recognize his voice and the very next day the FBI took over the tip line because they were getting thousands of calls which is actually crazy also because like I said there's less than 3,000 people who live in Delphi so This is like, I mean, this story is already getting so big that like they're getting so many calls. And that happens like whenever there is a tip line, it's like 
um Bessie Joe's gonna call about her shitty ex-husband and be like I think he did it so you have to like it's hard to navigate those kind of calls from the ones that you that are actually important so it's a lot if there's thousands of calls and you have to be like okay is this one credible or is this one not and then you have to like look into it and it it I agree it'd be like a very daunting thing and like talking about setting this case setting apart like how how much it blew up in the first like couple of weeks mm-hmm. so after they released that audio clip and the tips started coming in 6,000 electronic billboards were placed along highways, not just in Indiana, but across the country with the picture of -hmm. the guy and the tip line phone number for the Delphi murders. Fucking crazy. Like, um, I mean, because I thought at the beginning, I was like, okay, it can't be somebody that lives there because... You would Someone think would have seen him, right? Yes, I was like, you would he's think gotta be a immediately he's got to be like yes. a traveling computer salesman. I don't know, but a serial a serial killer, a serial like, killer. That's true. Um, who knows? But I think one of the biggest reasons that it blew up like that is one, of course, two young, pretty white girls, but also the fact that they got their killer on camera. Yeah, that's like, like that's not often that insane. That happens. Insane. And so they place these billboards up and by March 1st, so this happened it happened on February 13th they were killed, right? right. March March 1st, two-ish weeks later, the reward for information leading to an arrest jumped to more than Mm $200,000 in two weeks. And part of that is because the case did blow up and it started getting so much attention around Indianapolis that Colt's owner, Jim Ursay and Mm -hmm. the, the punter, Pat McAfee, he, they collectively donated a hundred thousand dollars. So half of that money, that reward money was purely because of all of the attention that the case got. And like it grabbed, it grabbed the attention of like the Colts organization who Mm -hmm. ended up donating money. So that's crazy. And, um, Another month went by and the case remained top of mind for like, it seemed like the entire state was following this story. Oh yeah, it was like always in our, well, for non-newsies, the A block is the first part of your newscast before the first commercial at the top of the hour. So it'd be like, if you have the six o'clock newscast, it'd be six to six ten, let's say. You would always have Delphi in that one definitely like the top one of the top stories like you like it was not even if it was just like here's a push for information every single every single day so after almost three months of investigation police announced on april 25th they had received more than sixteen thousand tips and conducted over 500 interviews how do you go through that many tips in that short amount of time that's how my do question. You, how do you conduct 500 interviews? You're right. Like, how does that not get so overwhelming? I know. I, I know. But they, I mean, they did have the FBI, but that's, that's a lot. Yeah. So, so at this point they have 
the Carroll County Sheriff's Department. They have right. Indi- Indiana State Police mm-hmm. and, the F- and the FBI. I just... <laughs> I'm already stressed about it, and I'm not even involved. So that was a, toward the end of April. July 17th, Indiana State Police released more information to the public. This time, it was a composite sketch of the suspect believed to be involved in the murders. And any media attention that had, like, possibly died down ramped right, right back, right you back. You know what I remember what? the most? Here's a sketch with this man wearing a hat, but don't focus on the hat. <laughs> I'd say that you put that in there. Well, I remember specifically we had to talk to the news director about that. He was like, You have to say don't focus on that. And I was like, Oh my god. Is is the I mean in the picture he's wearing a hat. Right, but like they said the sketch is just a generic hat. Like, don't focus on the details of the hat, but it looked kind of like this. It looked just I'm sorry, it looks just like the hat in the picture. Does it not? I'm like, huh? There was a lot of confusion with the sketch. I'll let you get into it, but that was one of the most frustrating things to me. I mean, the sketch is like where things just really blow up because so like you have this picture and it gives you kind of an idea of like what the person looks like, their stance, how tall they are, kind of their, their body build. But when you see a sketch of like what someone's face looks like, Mm-hmm. that's when you have people getting on facebook they're posting they're posting pictures of people they know side by side with this sketch and i'm not even kidding you it got so bad that indiana state police had to release a statement asking people not to post comparisons don't on do that don't fucking do that they said don't post comparisons on social media sergeant kim riley warned that doing this was very dangerous and could put people's lives and families at yeah. risk yeah i mean and like the sketch was i wouldn't say generic but i mean it kind of is like it's generic enough that it could fit any man any man in the midwest a little yeah. bit yeah that's my cousin <laughs> that's my that's neighbor. the problem too is like everyone's trying to there's and there's so much pressure on mm-hmm. trying to find this person that they're, yeah people are pulling similarities from like random people mm-hmm. and posting it on social media and it's, it's just like, gossip you cannot <laughs> do you cannot you simply no. cannot do that no you cannot so <laughs> so we're going to jump to September of 2017, okay. which is what I like to call the first red herring. There are so many times where things would pop up and it would be like, start circulating that people would think that this person was involved and mm-hmm. they'd, pe- people would be presenting their own evidence on social right. media. But this is the first time that police actually announced a person of interest in the case they they traveled to Colorado and this is where we get introduced to Daniel Daniel Nations so Daniel Nations is from Indiana this man was arrested in Colorado Springs for Threatening hikers on a local trail with a hatchet. Mm-hmm. They, mm, that they, sucks. 
sus. That is terrifying. And police were able to match his car and description to this guy who had been making threats on the trail will come to find out that a man had been shot and killed on that same trail two weeks prior. Mm-hmm. So though all of those details coupled with the photos released of Daniel nations, everybody thought this is it. This is our, I dude. did that. He looks this guy, Daniel nations. He did looks- look a lot. Yeah. So strikingly similar to the composite sketch that police yes. had released. And he had quite the criminal history in Indiana. In January of 2018, after they go conduct this interview and they name him a person of interest, Nations is extradited back to Indiana on an unrelated felony charge. They stress that. At the end of the day, <laughs> my man's failed to register as a violent sexual offender. So we lo- great, great. That's great. great. So they extradite him. They bring him back to Indiana. Everyone is like... This is the perfect suspect for the Delphi murders. He's clearly violent. He is threatening people on trails with a hatchet. They're like, he looks (laughs) casual. He looks just like this guy in the composite sketch. And everyone's like, this is it. But on the one year anniversary of the murders, Indiana State Police held a press conference to talk about the latest information in the case and they cleared Daniel Nations from being a person of interest and they they said yeah they said and I quote he's not a person we care a whole lot about damn (laughs) what a burn sick okay so oh buckle up because oh no (laughs) you because I'm I'm telling you there we're going to find out along the way as time goes on we find out just how much information Indiana State Police has that they are withholding from the public. Oh, yeah, we don't even like, know. I mean, they didn't release how they died. They still have oh, it. No, currently still, to this day. They still so, have it. I'm talking about like when you have something like this where it's like a person of interest comes up but Along the way, like, I know all of these other things of other people that you're talking to and interviewing and whatever, that it's like, why did you even name this guy a person of interest? That's true. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Continue. So <laughs> they they made that announcement on the one-year anniversary. So now we're one year into the case. We have a picture of the killer, a composite sketch. And audio audio clip of the suspected killer but we are back to square one we have no no person of interest no suspect I was so frustrated I was and so frustrated it it is frustrating you and I know that that is more public information and evidence than most cases ever see correct ever. correct we have all of this shit why has nothing happened Yeah. And at the same time, family members are starting to do more high profile interviews about the case. They're appearing not just on the local news, but on shows like Dr. Phil. And that exposure skyrocketed the number of tips that were coming into police. So that's just what they need. They're getting like an overwhelming amount of calls. It just doesn't make any sense because like they're getting all of these tips. They're conducting all of these interviews, but like another year 
a whole Crickets. year Crickets. without any major updates. So mm. the second anniversary comes and goes without any movement or answers. And it felt like the case might be getting cold, right? Mm-hmm. So then we get to April 22nd of 2019 and police hold a press conference that is nothing short of dramatic as well. Oh, is that this press conference is it not is, the one we're talking about? It is the most insane thing I've ever seen on television. So during this press conference, police released a brand new composite sketch of the suspect that looks absolutely different from the first sketch correct different ages different bone structures different hair i was like i mean the face the face looks thinner it looks younger i think one one of the most drastic differences is like the nose looks Uh so different and actually we we later find out that this composite sketch that they released two years later was (gasps) actually it was the first composite first one it was the first composite sketch that was ever done but they when they released the first composite sketch in 2017 it was actually the second one that was done is that so I don't remember. Is that from two different witnesses? Yes. So they trusted one more than the other and they gambled wrong? I I don't really know what the thought process was there. I really don't either because then we I remember we ran both sketches and I was like, this is not helpful. Well, and that's that's the other thing. So you've got this new sketch. So again, people are posting side again, they're posting side by side images. This looks like this, my nephew. <laughs> this new sketch was someone that they know. And the Carroll County Sheriff's Department posted on Facebook asking people to stop saying they literally said, You're ruining innocent people's lives. You're ruining people's lives. Stop. <laughs> I stop. I fucking said don't do this and you did it again (laughs) not only that I also remember like you said people were posting the new composite sketch with the old composite sketch back like together and I remember police not wanting people to do that either and I'm like yeah because they're different these are two different people I also remember a comment from police of them saying, well, if you overlay the faces of the composite sketch, you'll get like a complete. That doesn't make sense. This is, what is this? They're different ages. I remember the first sketch, it was like 40s to 50s. And then the next one, they said 30s to. They literally said, we we think he might be younger and he could fall this wide ass age range of like 21 to like 45. And then. So I don't remember if it was the first one or the second press conference, but they said he does not have blue eyes, right? Do you remember that? Yes. Oh my God. I I do. Right. They have to have DNA then because how else would they know that? Or unless the witness was like, I'm pretty sure it wasn't blue. Yeah. I totally forgot about the eyes. There's just so many weird things that the police dropped. So during this presser, so they released the sketch, but that's not the only thing they released. They also released a short video of the Mm -hmm. man walking on the Monon High Bridge along with a 
slightly longer audio clips which slightly it's literally like point zero one second one second longer um but i'm gonna play that for you now The main reason police released these extended clips were to give the public a better idea of how this man looked and sounded. So in the video, it appears the man walks a little bit slower. He might have a limp. And I remember police saying like in the press conference too, it was so spooky. They're like, pay attention to how he walks look Mm -hmm. at how look at how he carries himself Mm -hmm. it was just so it made me feel icky yeah it was major ick and one of the biggest takeaways from this news conference you get even more public information you get a, a video so we have this picture the still image now we have a video of him walking mm-hmm. we still we have a longer audio clip we have a new composite sketch we have all of this and nothing still all that was it. so frustrating but we get all of this information and still the craziest part of this press conference what am i forgetting is indiana state police said that they believe the killer is from (gasps) from delphi and could still be living in the community didn't they say didn't they say something like he could be in this room i actually i'm going to play a clip of (gasps) indiana state police superintendent doug carter and the like message that he gave to the room because it is truly one of the most chilling things that I have like ever heard. To the killer who may be in this room. We believe you are hiding in plain sight. For more than two years, you never thought we would shift gears to a different investigative strategy but we have. We likely have interviewed you or someone close to you. We know that this is about power to you and you want to know what we know and one day you will. Can you believe? I remember that. I remember watching it live. Because I think we, because we worked the night shift, so we should have been asleep, but I knew that the presser was going to happen. So I stayed up and watched it and I was like, oh, yes, because the the press conference happened right during the noon show. Okay. Yeah. So I definitely either set an alarm to wake up or I just stayed awake. First of all, that's like one of the most insane messages I've ever heard. A police right. officer directly talking. Because that to wasn't like, for us. No. It was not for the public. It was for the killer. And I mean, it did. It did what it needed to do. Yeah, it did. It, the impact of that statement was so insane. But the downfall to it is every single person in Delphi was fucking terrified. That's true. I mean, like, talk about putting the community on edge. Like, they were. That's true. So I didn't even think about scared. that. 
I remember we interviewed people that day. They didn't even know what to say. It's crazy to think that something like this would happen in your small town. And now it's been two years. We know we have no idea who this is. And police are saying, oh, hey, by the way, we think that whoever did this still might live here. It was out of the blue. Like they had never said that before. No. Ugh. So. Woof. (laughs) This was a big shift in the case. Thousands of more tips came pouring in in the days and weeks after the press conference. And as police continued their investigation, the Delphi community did everything that they could to honor the girl's legacy, which, I mean, they really don't have anything else they can do. And they're trying. They don't want the case to go cold. They want to keep talking about these girls Mm -hmm. and they want some sort of positivity from this. So they come together and they raise money to build a memorial park Mm -hmm. in Abby and Libby's name, which also included softball fields, which both the girls played softball together. There were also events like food drives and there was a memorial fund in their name and family and community members, they were just trying to do anything they could to talk about it. And that's one a good of- way to yeah, keep their memory alive. Um, if if you know somebody who's a victim of a crime, just doing events like that and making sure you contact media, let them know, hey, this is happening on this date, it'll keep your story up there, especially <laughs> weekends are slow, usually. Yeah. So <laughs> if you have it on the For weekend, sure. definitely make sure to like let your media outlets know. And yeah. you can't, you're kind of just doing whatever you can do because I don't know how much police have were talking to the family about the investigation. I, yeah. I have no idea, but I, I do know that one of the biggest advocates for this case is Libby's older sister, Kelsey, who yes. actually, yeah, she actually decided to dedicate a lot of her time to advocating for this case. And she attended things like crime con true crime mm-hmm. conventions after she graduated from ball state she started studying forensic science mm-hmm. at, at purdue she's and a badass she's so fucking cool and in an interview with people magazine she said that she literally started taking forensic classes just in case she happened to learn something new right that detectives working on her sister's case may not have thought about wow that's amazing it breaks my heart that to feel so helpless that you're right I'm gonna do I'm literally gonna do anything I can literally anything you can yeah that would be tough crazy another year passed and the four-year anniversary was approaching with no arrests made it seemed like another year would slip by but then in December of 2021 police announced a possible break in the case and this one really threw everyone for a loop I remember the day that we got this press release and I was like what the hell is this investigators issued a brief press release about a fake social media account they were looking into oh yeah yes they're looking into a fake social media account we want any information that has to do with it and By the way, this somehow is connected to the Delphi murders. I, okay. I was so shocked when they did that because I was like, you're going to lay that on us in a little teeny press release? Yes. No. Up until now, every 
every big announcement that they had made had been like it was like a video press conference a, a press conference a media conference something like that this was a out of the blue press release and I vividly remember it being we are looking for information into this social media account and by the way it has something to do with the double okay I have a recovered memory of the day that came out because that came out at night right yes and then I remember you and I were like this has to be our lead story we I remember because we were at a point when we like we were working on our on the morning show where Mm -hmm. (laughs) it wasn't much it wasn't much information for a reporter you usually have to have I mean you'd like to have sound you'd like to have video and we really just had this press release but we were also at a point where we had we had just hired a bunch of new people. That's true. We had to explain all of why this was so important and how yeah, it was yeah, yeah. so crazy and mm-hmm. how we I remember you and I coming up like a script just to yep. like, for the give, reporter. Just to give context. Yeah. So this social media profile that they were looking into was an account named Anthony underscore shots, which they would just go on to refer to it as Anthony shots. Yes. And like I said, at first, police didn't say what the profile had to do with the case. So everyone that was following the case or had, you know, heard about this press release, they were like, what the hell? They were, yeah, we're so, just like, what? So confused. And we would later come to find out that this Anthony shots profile was in contact with Libby shortly before she and Abby were murdered. Yes. And then, so the pictures were of a male model, I remember. Yes. And we had to be very careful when we showed photos of the profile because we had to be like, this is not the person behind the account. Yes, this is just exactly. the pictures that they use. So it's like a it's, hot guy. It's a cat. It's a catfish. It's, it's a, catfish a catfish account. account. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally a catfish. So. Right. Everyone kind of learned some new information thanks to leaked transcripts from this podcast called the Murder Sheet Podcast, which yeah. had been following the Delphi case. And, it, you know, another podcast in Indiana, they've been following the case and kind of doing some investigative work themselves. Of their own, and, yeah. And these transcripts indicated that Libby was obsessed with this online persona. She was talking to him all the time. She was totally, the word that they used was enthralled. She Ugh, was just this like. poor girl. Yeah, she was so Ugh. into this account. And little did she know that the person behind the account was actually a man in his 20s named Keegan Klein. Literal human waste. I I mean, he just, there are there are no positive things to say about this man. This development really showed the public how much information police had been sitting on because Klein was arrested in August of 2020 on 30 charges of child exploitation, child solicitation, and possession of child porn. Not only that, but police actually interviewed Klein and searched his Kokomo home 12 days after the girls were murdered. That's wild. 12 days 12 days I was thinking about this because I I mean obviously police held on to this account they knew within two weeks that Libby I mean they had her phone they knew that she was 
talking to him, whether that be on Instagram or Snapchat, we know that the last pictures of Abby and Libby were from their Snapchat's account. They posted right. pictures um, to their Snapchat stories. It was on their of story, them. yeah. Yeah, on the high bridge. And again, these teenagers, they're, when their friends had found out that they had gone missing, they had taken screenshots of the last pictures. How did they, they know to do that? How do you think to do that? Of That is so smart. So please, yeah. you're able to have these screenshots of the last known pictures, and those are all time-stamped. So right. they were able to have that. They clearly knew within two weeks that she was talking to someone, but they wait until... 2021 to start Mm -hmm. asking the public for information about this profile yeah it is frustrating as a member of the public but i do get you don't know who has access to that account oh you don't be more than one person you don't and let's talk about that okay (laughs) you don't and let's let's dive in court documents revealed that klein admitted to creating the fake profile and he was using it with images of that male model. So he was right. pretending to be this someone poor else. poor guy. <laughs> I know. Who just looks, honestly, the male model who we use pictures with looks just like a sweet little baby. Like he, mm-hmm. and I feel really bad for him. But yeah, I know. Klein used this account to meet with underage girls in person and to solicit nude photos from underage girls. Trash. What a trash human. A waste actually, of fucking space. Actually trash. Klein also told police he wasn't the only one who was using the account. And apparently a number of other people had access to the account, including his father. <laughs> uh-huh. I hate humans. Uh-huh. We, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so... Klein actually sat down with a producer from Headline News, HLN, for a jailhouse interview. I don't think it was on camera. I think it was just like one-on-one interview. But he said in that interview that he thought police were trying to pin the murders on his father. Get out. What is happening? Go fuck yourself. (laughs) God. I just, when you think that it can't get any crazier, it's, this is insane. So here's another crazy thing. (laughs) Yeah. And a break like this only led to people to jump to more conclusions about who Mm -hmm. was responsible. Now people are thinking that Klein, because he was behind this account and the account had been talking to Libby before she died. Yeah. People are trying to connect the dots there, Mm -hmm. but- Klein has never been publicly named a suspect or charged in connection to the Delphi murders. And the same goes for his father. There's and that so is, much we don't know. There's, there's so much we don't so know. So much we don't know. And that is as of right now. I right. Mean, maybe down the line, something else happens. I, I mean, I have no idea. Clearly, they're investigating it. We have no idea what the potential is behind that. But right. as of right now, Neither of them are considered a suspect. The more I think about it, I'm like, it could just be a coincidence that they were talking to this account. Yes, he could have solicited like nude photos, but like that doesn't necessarily mean that (laughs) they're the people that- It could just be another shitty person in this world. That has nothing to do with how they were killed. They could have, he could have just been grooming them and nothing happened yet. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, 
Officials have never released a cause of death for Abby and Libby. And according to a redacted search warrant, there were no visible signs of a struggle or a fight in that same. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. (gasps) In that same warrant, police also said there was a large amount of blood lost by the victims at the crime scene. And I want to mention a few other details that we kind of found out along the way from either a police report, court documents, the fact that the video taken on Libby's phone, where they pulled those audio clips and the images from, yeah, it's 43 seconds. Shit. We, the public- We've seen three seconds. Three seconds. We've seen or heard about three seconds of that. Okay, that's what I've always thought. The reason they haven't released the whole thing, and this is just my speculation, I think that she recorded him for a second- got bad vibes and kept it recording and put it in her pocket. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised because, and I'm going to kind of go into, I still have two crazy. (laughs) It's a crazy case. There's so much. Two crazy talking points to go on. And we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit more about the video coming up, but according to the documents from police, they said that the girl's bodies appeared to have been, moved or somewhat staged right they also had mentioned that there were articles of clothing that were found nearby they didn't really elaborate on that but we do know that some sort of dna and physical evidence was recovered from the scene an fbi agent said that fibers and unidentified hairs were taken from the crime scene. That gives me a little bit of hope to know that there's some sort of physical evidence I know, but there. aren't fibers and hair, hasn't that been a little bit, like, discredited? I mean, hairs. I like, mean, it can add to the circumstantial. I guess if you get I, a root or whatever. Yeah, I, I guess it just depends on what sort of... They didn't elaborate Ugh, and say, like... so what, much unknown. I know, I know. <laughs> Throughout this whole case... We also learned in the initial days after the murders and even later into the investigation, police were looking into a man who owned property along the area where the girls were found. Yes, that was a big one. Yes. Even at the start. Another thing that is absolutely insane about this is this guy's name is Ronald Logan. He lived on County Road 300 North near the trail that leads to the Monon High Bridge. Logan was immediately on police's radar because he had a very similar physical build. Midwestern dad bod. Yeah, he lived so close to the crime scene. Like yes, yes, yes. His property literally butted up to the crime scene. So they kind of already were keeping an eye on him. But what's super crazy is that he actually took reporters on, I guess, sort of like a walk and talk through his property. Through his property to the crime scene. (gasps) So he How soon after? Oh, in the days after. So yeah. This is days after the girls were murdered, and he is talking on camera to reporters, walking them through his property right up to the crime scene. That's wild. 
Yeah. And that is, he's like giving people tours. And he also told them he had lived on that property for 50 years. And he said that he couldn't fathom how the girls would have reached that area. That gives more credence to they were moved because I remember where they were found. I think the searchers had searched that spot or close to it the day before. Yes, you are correct. And the thing about this is, so he's jumping to talk to media. He's talking to police. And what's one thing that we know is it is not uncommon for criminals Mm -hmm. to try and get involved in police investigation. So this really stood out to police on top of the fact that Logan's home was later searched because he had violated his probation. He wasn't supposed to be driving and he had been caught driving. So officials went to his house. They issued a search warrant. They found multiple weapons in his home including a handgun good and knives awesome and the search warrant also revealed that logan had lied about his alibi the day the girls were murdered so he told police that a friend had come to pick him up around 2 p.m to go to an aquarium store in lafayette which is lafayette's like 25 minutes away from delphi and did he have fish girl i don't know (laughs) why the hell are you going to an aquarium store that's what he told police he said he was going to an aquarium store in lafayette and the next morning logan contacted a family member asking them to corroborate his story with police saying (gasps) he didn't he said he didn't return home until about 5 30 that evening but during that home search Police found a receipt from February 13th with a checkout time of 521. So he said he got home around 530. They find this receipt that's time stamped at 521, but it's 25 minutes away from. So it's not adding up. And this puts his whole timeline into question and just kind of makes him even more sketchy. Right. On top of that. Cell phone tower data showed that his cell phone was in Delphi in the area of the Monon High Bridge Trail on the afternoon of February 13th, which in the area is like relative because obviously there's a bunch of different cell towers or whatever. Yeah. And his property butts up to the Monon Trail. So it's like what I mean, he could be at home, but they said that a text message that he sent from his phone around 8 p.m., police say that the location data on that text shows that he was likely outside the perimeter of his residence and in the proximity of the murder scene. We don't like that. Not a great look. Not a good look. Nope. FBI agents and other police entities still have their speculations about Logan's possible involvement in the homicides. However, no physical evidence has ever been released linking Logan to the murders. And unfortunately, there's a good chance that we may never know if he was involved because Logan died in January of 2022. Mm -hmm. He was also never named a suspect or charge. So we've heard compelling evidence for three possible men. How do we get to where we are today where there's an arrest? In the I don't fucking know. <laughs> well, I'm going to take you along. I'm going to explore All right. it to you. 
Sounds good. So I will say this, this is kind of the point in this investigation where you and I are no longer following this story in a newsroom. This is the that's first true. This is the first thing that's happened in this case that we have not been working for, right. like working the Which case. Which is crazy. So on October 26th of 2022, police arrested 50-year-old Richard Allen, a Delphi native. Two days later, he was formally charged on two counts of felony murder. Police held another press conference to announce the arrest and the charges, but they would not release any information about how they got there. They didn't say anything about any evidence or how they got to the arrest of Richard Allen. Police said that they were confident that they had their guy, but they were still accepting information and investigating if Alan had help. They basically wanted people to continue calling in to see if there was anyone else who could have been involved in this. So they were like, this is our dude, but we're not sure if he acted alone. That's where, that's kind of where it stood. So that press conference, I, my jaw was on the floor. I they didn't say anything there to be an arrest. No, it came out of nowhere. And then the lack of information that they gave. Obviously, they arrested and charged him. So they had right. they they have enough evidence for a probable cause affidavit to arrest right. him. And if people don't know what a probable cause affidavit is, for a probable cause, you just need enough information for the arrest. This is not a document that contains all your evidence and is going to be presented in court. It's like a a snippet. It's like a tease of like, this this is the biggest piece of evidence we have linking this person. And they could, they may have a bunch of other evidence, but they are not, they're not putting it in the probable cause affidavit. Right, 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 right. But it didn't matter because the probable cause affidavit was sealed by the court. So there there was no information. It was like almost immediately. There were no information going out, which caused a lot of controversy in and of itself because this whole time the public had been given so much information, like since the very beginning of the investigation. So much but so little. Yeah, they wanted answers. think about it. They wanted answers. And and to an extent, like I get it. They've they've been following this case. They're scared and they want mm-hmm. they want some answers. But at the same time, police can't give you those answers if it's going to jeopardize their case. Right. We are not entitled to that information as much as we feel like we are. If if the police don't feel like there's an actual threat to the public, we we are not privy to that information. And it's hard as like humans because we're naturally inquisitive. We want to know people who who are interested in true crime. We're like, oh, my God, I want to know everything. But it could jeopardize the case. Yeah. And a a Carroll County judge agreed. His name is Benjamin Diner. 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 Benjamin Diner. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, he, he's here for five seconds. He, he held a public hearing on the matter. So he was appointed to the case in Carroll County. He held a public hearing on the probable cause affidavit and ultimately granted a motion to keep it sealed. And he said, quote, the public's bloodlust for information before it exists is extremely dangerous. All public servants administering this action do not feel safe and are not protected. I mean, I don't disagree. 
Less than 24 hours later, he recused himself of the case. Yeah, he was like, goodbye. He said, I, you know what? This was a good idea, but I, I'm done. I gotta so, go, goodbye. The Indiana Supreme Court handed the case over to Francis Gull, a criminal administrative judge in Allen County, which is where Fort Wayne is. So right. about a week later, Gull ordered a redacted version of the probable cause affidavit to be released. So I kind of want to go back to that press conference from 2019 for a minute. Okay. The one the one where Indiana State Police said that they believed the suspect was hiding in plain sight. Right. Living, living in Delphi and that the officials may have already interviewed him. Oh, my God. Yeah, go ahead. Every single bit of that statement was true. Richard Allen was living in Delphi, working as a pharmaceutical tech at the local CVS. The redacted document revealed that Allen came forward as a witness and was interviewed by police in 2017. He said he had been on the Delphi Historic Trail between 1.30 and 3.30 p.m., the exact same time that the girls were on the trail, on February 13th. Five years later, when Allen was interviewed again by police, he again admitted to being on the trail on the day the girls were murdered. He also admitted that he was wearing similar clothing to the description from witnesses and in the video on Libby's phone. But he said that he didn't see the girls or have anything to do with their deaths. Bullshit. I mean, it is important to to state Allegedly that bullshit. He is innocent until proven guilty. Yes. That's true. What really ties Alan to the crime scene, though, is a single unspent bullet found in between the girls' bodies. So police say they were able to assess the bullet, and based on extraction marks on the Mm -hmm. bullet, they determined it had been passed through a pistol belonging to Richard Allen. So basically, to break that down, the bullet was not shot from a gun. Right. It was in the chamber of the gun, and it was passed through. And when you turn the chamber, sometimes a bullet will come when through. You and, it. Yeah, and it'll fall out. Yeah. And when it when it does that, there's marks that are left on the bullet. Yes. And they were able to determine through... Well, it's like the, a fingerprint, right? Yeah. They were able to determine based on the type of gun he had and the type of bullet it was that those two things matched. And yes. he could say, well, someone else used my gun or borrowed it. The only problem is... But he fucking did it. <laughs> he had already told police... That no one else had used his gun what or had access to idiot. it. idiot. When police asked him about the unspent bullet, he could not provide an explanation for it. I don't it. know how it got there. Yeah, basically. <sighs> so the document still did not reveal how the girls died, but if the killer had a gun, it would make sense. The document says that in that 43-second video on Libby's phone, one of the girls said the word gun. And police believe 
that Alan used the weapon to get the girls to go down the hill. Yeah, and that's something I remember us talking in the newsroom about amongst ourselves. Oh, one person can't control two girls, and if they have a gun, yeah, they yeah. definitely could. And another thing that that I was kind of discussing when I was doing my research, I, I had talked to a couple of reporters that had worked on this case, and they were saying one thing that police kept saying over and over again is these girls stuck together. They yeah. they were always together. They even in this terrifying time, I wouldn't want to leave my best friend. Right. This is so scary. Why would you in your mind now you think why wouldn't you try to run or whatever? But it, well, you don't want to leave the other. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to leave your friend. Also, this guy has a gun that's scary so when this redacted document came out it kind of seemed to me that some people were disappointed with the details but I actually think that it was a bit meatier than we expected I think we got a lot of nuggets of information I think so we learned that a witness who was driving along 300 North, which is that's the same road that Ronald Logan lived on that backed up to the trail. The witness said she saw a man walking away from the Monon High Bridge covered in mud and blood. Mm-hmm. And she also said he was wearing a blue jacket and jeans, just like the man in the video that Libby took. And admittingly... From Richard Allen himself, a similar outfit to the one that he was wearing that day. Because he told police he was wearing a similar outfit to the guy in the video. I can't believe that he's pleading not guilty. According to the affidavit, police concluded that Allen was the only male adult in the area that day. And that by his own admissions, it made him the prime culprit of these crimes. And Mm -hmm. police obtained the clothes And the weapon in question for further testing. The trial itself is set for late March, but that will likely get pushed back. I think it's fair to expect a media circus around this trial when it actually does begin. To me, I think that the defense team is going to have an uphill battle with this case. It's such a big case that it will be nearly impossible to find a fair jury. And there are just too many people who have been following it and have information about the crimes. The case was actually moved out of Carroll County. It's going to take place in Allen County, where the presiding judge, Francis Gull, is located. And that is also where the jury pool will be selected. So. That is where things are right now. I know that's a ton of information, but those are the high-level details and the most important things that I wanted to hit on to really show. It's a crazy case. Yeah, and how this case, like, became the nationwide media frenzy that it is now. And there's still, there's a guy who's arrested and charged with the murders, but there's so much up for discussion. Could there be more arrests? Right, and, like, the Anthony Schatz profile, how does that does does that it does does it it tie in does it are we ever gonna find out how they died is that going to come out in trial i mean police police said when they would talk about it they would describe how brutal they would say it's a brutal murder and and Mm -hmm. all this stuff are we ever gonna find out exactly how they were killed 
There's never been any information about were they assaulted? Is Was this a sexual crime? Because there, there were articles of clothing that were found in the area, but they didn't say if it was a shoe or right. a shirt. And so- it, was, it was winter, even though it was warm. So maybe they had gloves or like a hat a or co- something. We just co- don't know. Yeah. We don't know. And I really want, uh, what I'm expecting to find out during this trial is more about the DNA stuff, mm-hmm. how how much DNA and the types of DNA they have and, and if they were able to link that DNA to Richard Allen. Um, I feel I like could, they would have said that. I see. I could imagine that that's something they saved for the trial. Really? Yeah. I don't know, because in order to go to trial, you have to have probable cause. And I feel DNA would be the strongest link to probable cause. But they have the bullet. and That's true. And and the thing is, too, like I said, they don't have to reveal all the evidence they have. They just have to reveal something that right. is enough that is enough to connect that person to arrest them. That's true. So... I don't know. There's been, I mean, there's, there's, this is literally the definition of a rabbit hole. You could go Uh so deep into this. So that is, that is the Delphi case. Good job. Thanks. I know it was very daunting. It's a lot. It was so much to put into words because we experienced this over a period of five Mm -hmm. or six, five or six years and to put that all down in a cohesive like this is what happened when and without all the speculation and stuff the facts ma'am the facts period (laughs) well you did a good job thank you i i'm I'm excited to see where it goes yeah i think that i mean obviously this case has gotten so big when it goes to trial it'll be in the headlines every Mm -hmm. day until until something happens with it but um I I am very interested to see this this case is highlighted as as one of the cases that that blew up but there are so many cases that we covered that were just as crazy that did not blow up that and I know it. you're going to talk about one of those cases. Yes. Yes. So you did a great a great little toss to me and I fucked it all up. Okay. That's okay. I'm going to talk about a case that happened three months before the Delphi murders. Okay, it was three in months. Indiana, so it happened in Flora, a small town in Carroll County, which is the same as Delphi. It's barely larger than one square mile, the whole town, with a little over two thousand people. So, so similar size, yes, I mean- a similar size, similar type of area. So it was the early morning hours of Monday, November twenty first, twenty sixteen. When a duplex with two apartments on East Columbia Street caught fire, police were dispatched around 4 a.m. 29-year-old Galen Rose, the tenant, made it out of the home. Her four daughters were still inside. I was talking to you about this, which is crazy. So just today, the day we're recording, which is February 2023, Fox 59 News, CBS 4 News in Indianapolis shared the dash cam video of one of the officers that responded to the fire. Six years later. Six years later. God. And that's crazy. And I watched it today and it was very intense, very emotional. It's just crazy to think that it's been six years and we're just now seeing this. With the Delphi case, what did you say? It was four hours later. 
we had a still image. So that was that was four hours after their bodies were identified, but it was two days later. Two days later. So just like a short time after. Yeah. So we're talking two days and six six years. Yeah. To compare. So I just I didn't have the words when watching this, but the camera is fixed in the in the vehicle pointing through the windshield. The officer, Carroll County Deputy Drew Yoder, was wearing a microphone. So the dash cam footage shows just like a fixed point, but you can hear his microphone when he's moving and when he goes into the house. So I actually did a lot of editing oh, you, today. You what? can hear it. You can hear it when he goes in the house. Yeah. Yep. Oh shit. I know. It's 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 intense. So this dash cam footage gave us a more detailed timeline of events. So it was a lot of things that I didn't put together when I did the notes for this a couple of days ago. So so we'll kind of break down what happened here. So according to Fox 59, Rose said the family of five spent the day previous grocery shopping. They came home, ate dinner, went to bed around 10 p.m. the night before. Rose told Fox 59 she was woken up by intense smoke, which I can't even imagine. Like, no. No. So the girls were upstairs. Their bedroom was upstairs. Rose was in her bedroom on the main floor. Okay. So she woke up by smoke. I might be jumping the gun. You're but good. Did they have smoke alarms? That we'll get into. Okay. Yes. Okay. So Rose said she tried to run up the steps, got halfway, had trouble breathing, and then she ran out of the house to get help. One of her neighbors was actually the person that called 911. So that 911 call happened at 335 a.m. So in a small sleepy town, 3.35 a.m., it's shocking. So witnesses told the Indy Star, which is a newspaper in Indianapolis, that Rose, the mom, stood outside the house that night in her nightgown yelling to her children, 11-year-old Kiana Davis, 9-year-old Kiara Phillips, 7-year-old Carielle McDonald, and 5-year-old Connie Welch. They said the four little girls were inside screaming for their mom. Oh my god. So it's 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 brutal. When you watch the I haven't watched this dash cam mm-hmm. image. When you watched it, can you hear them? I don't think so, but it was so chaotic. There was just so much going on and it was I don't think I'll ever forget Ugh. <laughs> watching it. So if you do if you the listener decides to to like watch this, just make yeah. sure there's a little trigger warning. You hear a lot and it's very, very intense. So officer Josh Dissinger with the Flora Police Department arrived on scene first, just seconds before officer Yoder. The time is 3.36 a.m. In the dash cam video, you can actually hear Rose, the mom, screaming for her kids. So that's one thing you can hear. And it's it's heartbreaking. Like, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. And she told the officers the kids were upstairs. Witnesses, neighbors, also said they saw flames and heavy smoke coming from the home with visibility of only a foot and a half from the floor. So it was already- What? Yeah, it was already raging by the time first responders got there. And by the time I assume Rose woke up. So yeah, you're woken up from a deep sleep and you're just like, what is happening? So- Here's an interesting fact that I didn't know until listening to the dashcam video. So apparently the layout of the stairs was weird. Not weird, but like not standard. So you're at the bottom step. There's a longer flight up from the ground, then a sort of square landing, and then a second shorter steps up at an angle. So it's like an L? 
Yes. So it's like an L. So that was kind of like, it was hard for the officers to understand where the, where the girls were. So were they upstairs? Yes. The girl's bedroom was upstairs. The mom's bedroom was downstairs. Got it. Okay. So officer Yoder got to the landing. He was overcome by smoke, ran back out. He then radioed for more help, drove to the Florida fire department, which was not yet on scene, but the department's building is 24 seconds away from the house. Shut up. Is that actual like like yeah. mapped out? Yeah. It, you can you can time it in the dash cam video. Oh my god. I know. But I mean by the time I assume by the time Rose woke up, it was pretty intense. So the time now is 3:38 a.m. Officer Yoder is also a volunteer firefighter, which is amazing. I can't I can't even yeah. imagine this guy. So he drove to the fire department, got into his fire gear, and was back in his patrol car in less than a minute, ready to get back into the house. So Wait, that's so it. he's he's a police officer and a, a volunteer firefighter. firefighter. This man does it all. I know. Oh I my know. god. I know. I didn't write this down, but in the video, you can hear him almost like throwing up because the the smoke. Oh. Like he was, was struggling. Like... like the smoke was bad. Oh. And you can kind of see it better in the second half of the dashcam videos first half is when he first gets on scene the second half is when he goes back to the fire department to get his gear and then go back wow yeah it's crazy so that he gets back on scene 3 40 a.m at 3 42 both officers are back in the house they're crawling on their hands and knees times 3 45 a.m an emergency officer down call goes out you can hear alarms saying lack of oxygen they're beeping Oh, um, shit. So now there's four little girls in the house and two officers that firefighters have to try to get out. How long How long had they be, been in the house already? Uh, the officers got in there at 342. At 345 was when the officer down call came out. So three minutes mm-hmm. and there's so much smoke that they are having a hard time breathing. Yes. And, and the girls what- have been in there for how long? I mean, since the whole, at the least three thirty-five. So it's been te- they've been in there for ten minutes under those yeah. conditions, and grown men are struggling to breathe. Yeah. Oh, I know it's it's horrible. Um, that really puts it into pers- like a perspective that I'd never. I know. Heard. That's why the Fox fifty-nine and CBS four did a really good job. They like broke it down by time. Okay. So that was really eye-opening to me. Just watching the dash cam video, it's it's crazy. So by the time the officer down call comes out, Officer Yoder's patrol car is kind of facing towards the house. So you can see the smoke. You can see black smoke coming out of the windows, coming out of the front porch. And then in the split second, it just bursts into flames. There's flames coming out the window, flames coming out the door. Oh my god. It's I literally intense. I have nothing else to say other than oh my god. Like, I know every- it's so intense on the dash cam video. Remember the microphone is on the officer in the home. So you can hear glass breaking, you can hear crawling around and it sounds like it sounds like a tornado. The flames. It's Oh yeah. It's insane. So it's 3:54 1 minute after the officer down call comes out, firefighters reach the officers and three of the girls removing them from the home emergency responders start cpr 
on the girls. Time 3.56, everyone is out of the house, so they got the last girl. And unfortunately, despite the best efforts of emergency responders, the four sisters could not be resuscitated. All four died at the scene. Less than a half an hour after the 911 call. It took 21 minutes after the 911 call. Which, honestly, to me, that doesn't... That seems fast. Like that it is seems fast, but when you watch when you watch the dash cam video, it feels like forever. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, this is an eleven year old, a nine year old, seven year old, and five year old. And all and they, four dead. So did they they announce that in the scene? Did they say anything about because obviously the mom was there? Were yes, was so, she was this like happening in front of her? Yes, and that was that was one of the most heartbreaking things in this dash cam is you can hear the mom the whole time. I bet she lost her shit. She I did. Mean, she I, was I would lose she my was shit. Wailing. She was pleading with the officers, please get my girls out. Did did she say like did she even try to go upstairs? Yes, and get she them? went in. She tried to go up. The smoke was too intense, and she ran back out to get oh neighbors to get help. So she was airlifted to the hospital for her injuries. The two officers that went in multiple times were also hurt trying to rescue them, but they were unable to reach them. They were taken to the hospital as well. All three recovered. That happened. And in the newsroom, we kind of ran it as a, what a tragedy, what a tragedy this happened because nothing came out yet of the cause and there wasn't a ton of information. So that happened in November. In January, There was some major movement in the case. Investigators at the Indiana State Fire Marshal's office determined the fire was an arson. So intentionally set. Um, Did they have, did they elaborate on what led them to that conclusion? Yes, a little bit. So they said they found accelerants in several places in the home. The girls' deaths were ruled a homicide. Inside the home? Yes. Don't like that. I don't either. And that's it. Officials really didn't reveal anything else about the investigation in 2016. So... And then and then, <laughs> three months later, Delphi happens. Three months later, Delphi happened. And that kind of took the world by storm. And I'll get a little bit more into that as to why a little later. But so let's jump to 2018. Two years later, a peer review by the Indianapolis Fire Department confirmed the house fire to be arson. So whenever there's an arson investigation, you always have a peer review, just making sure that everything is yep. how it's supposed to be. So, sure. but in June of 2019, a whole nother WT- year later, yeah, a whole nother year later, WTHR reported that arson investigator Dennis Randall resigned after a private investigator consulting on the case by a law firm representing the victim's family question whether the state moved too quickly in their arson declaration so now okay (laughs) so so they declare this an arson they get they get the peer review two years later and another another fire department backs it up and says that it's arson also correct but at the same time there's an independent investigation going on into the arson discovery Yes, by a law firm representing the victim's family, so the girl's mom. Okay, and they were like, this isn't, they they didn't think it was arson, or they just felt like they they made that conclusion too fast? Yes, so they felt like they made it too fast. So also in 2019, CBS4, Fox 59, exposed inaccuracies in the state fire investigator's initial report 
which stated accelerants were found, quote, all over the house. In reality, state police said they were only found in one spot. That is drastically different. Correct. So there's <laughs> there's a lot here, <laughs> a lot to unpack. The arson investigator, Dennis Randall, denies making any mistakes in the investigation. He said he resigned for personal reasons, which, I mean, you can draw <laughs> your own conclusions of that. But yeah. Yeah. So the state fire investigator was the first to resign. That was Randall. Then the county prosecutor announced his retirement at the end of 2019 for, again, personal reasons. Flores' fire chief also resigned. Hmm. So there's a lot we don't know (laughs) happening behind the scenes. Could be related, could not be, but it's all, I don't know. It's pretty, it's, yeah. It does, it feels suspicious. I mean- these are yes. three of the closest people presiding right. on this case and they're Yeah, and like you and I know like the media likes things that are tidy and neat. So when things get complicated, it's kind of hard to and tell the story. It's just even if it is okay, we're leaving for personal reasons or whatever, like it's simply not a good look. Yeah, you got to know how it looks. Yeah. But Indiana State Police still stands by the conclusion that the fire was intentionally set. The Carroll County prosecutor also believes the fire was intentional. Aside from that, there hasn't seemed to be much movement in the case from the public's point of view. Other than today's drop of the dash cam video, since 2019, there hasn't been much. Is So, like, Fox and CBS, they got this video. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure they requested it. Right. They- they probably, you know, had to jump through a couple of hoops to legally fill out documentation and stuff to right. get that video. Is there a reason why it was never released? I'm not sure. I don't know if I don't know if news stations and newspapers didn't know it existed or if they've been told no before due to information in the investigation. Yeah, I guess. So this was like the end of 2016, I guess, dash cam or, you know, body cam. Yeah, it was relatively new. It was not as used as it is now. Right. So I don't know if like that question just didn't get asked or if they wouldn't release it. Or people simply just forgot about it. Dropped Um, interest in this case. Yeah. Yes. So... I looked into the coverage and a lot of this research, so there would be little spotlights on the anniversaries of the Flora fire, so like when the girls died every November. Other than that, not much. I mean, today the yellow house still stands. It's faded. It's got plywood all over the windows and both floors. The outside siding is still charred from the fire. I know at one point stuffed animals were all over the porch as part of a makeshift memorial. And here we are almost seven years later, no arrests. No justice, no persons of interest, not really anything. So Indiana State Police is the lead law enforcement agency in this investigation. A spokesperson insists that the case is a priority. I'm not sure if the FBI is involved. I haven't heard that they are. It's it's really hard not to compare this to the Delphi murders. So that happened three months after these yeah. four little girls died. Mm-hmm. Indiana State Police Superintendent Doug Carter has been the spokesperson for the Delphi murders, and he's also 
spoken a little bit about the Florida case. So as you said, Valerie, there's recently been an arrest in the Delphi case. Doug Carter spoke at that press conference. In a in an interview with Wish TV, Carter said, quote, on my way up here, I stopped in Flora and I sat across the street in the gravel parking lot there. And I just thought, I hope that one day we can do the same thing for these four little girls. And I hope that we can. They're very different, both tragic outcomes. So we will continue to do everything that we can with that investigation. Any notion that we're not is simply not accurate. I have chills. I know, which goes to show like he's been asked yeah. about both cases and the disparity between both multiple times. Yeah. And I'm I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but I'll be the first to say Abby and Libby in Delphi. And I'm not going to say that this is like a factor, but it is when you look at it at the two mm-hmm. cases and you compare them. Abby and Libby are two young pretty white girls mm-hmm. and the the four young girls who were killed in flora are four beautiful little black girls and yes. it's it's unfortunate it's so unfortunate that mm-hmm. that happened to happen three months before delphi mm-hmm. because i do think that had that case been given a little more attention mm-hmm. it, there may have been more progress in it but it's it's so hard to look at them and be like I mean at least like I'm talking as a person like I'm not talking as like a journalist or a producer right. or a producer or whatever but it's hard to look at it and be like there's so much coverage around these two white girls why it are why isn't this family of for little black girls not getting the same attention right it gets hard to not look at it through that lens and that's coming from from two white women two white girls yeah two white yeah. women and um, it, but it's just it's so hard to not look it is at that as like a disparity because how can that not be a factor right not not saying that that impacted the investigation in any way it's just what the public is interested in unfortunately So the last press conference that I could find visually that state police held was November of 2022. That was the sixth anniversary of the girls' deaths. And that's pretty much it. So you kind of touched on it, but why didn't this blow up like Delphi? Or a lot of articles that I read mentioned the two together, at least early on. Flora kind of seemed to be tacked on to a Delphi story as an afterthought near the end of the article's often just a one-sentence line mentioning the Flora fire happened close to when the Delphi murders occurred. It's just crazy what the public latches on to. And statistically, like you said, we don't like to look at race, but it's a factor. Yeah. So the Delphi murders quickly gained national attention. Authorities held news conferences, conducted interviews, leads poured in, the reward money for information climbed, like you said. So in Delphi, the reward sits close to a quarter of a million dollars. In comparison, the reward to the Flora fire is $5,000. That For is some reason, unreal. Delphi seems to trump Flora. And to be fair, we do have a lot of a lot more evidence available to us in the Delphi case. We have that video, we have audio, we have sketches. You and I know that the that those two things, those things are what producers, journalists, news anchors love to have. Um, yeah. That's that can decide what makes the leading 
story of the night or the year. I'm also thinking about these two cases are in the same county. Mm-hmm. There's no way that some of the police officers who are investigating Flora didn't get pulled to go investigate. Delphi. I'll get to that. Don't you worry. <laughs> like, there's no way. Yeah. So all of the things that we've said, that doesn't mean Abby and Libby don't deserve the coverage. It means we need to do better. We need to advocate for all victims of tragedy, not get stuck on certain victim types. We need to have the same interest in Kiana, Kiara, Kiriel, and Connie as we do Abby and Libby. That's a big reason I know you and I started this podcast, aside from our interest in true crime, how it happens. We want to help the victims of violence and their families have better success in getting coverage of their cases. So more coverage equals more pressure on law enforcement agencies to solve the case, more eyes on the case, which could lead to more information. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in this case is the NAACP voiced its concerns in 2017 about how officers were handling the Flora house fire investigation. They asked why more had not been done in determining who set the fire, why family members weren't being included in the investigation. There were even suggestions of a cover-up, which state police deny. Superintendent Doug Carter also denied the accusations that the lack of developments is about race, saying, quote, Even the inference that it's about race is so very wrong. It's never mattered to me and never will. And I do believe that. I believe that. Yeah, I would like to go on the record saying that I think that Doug Carter is a good dude. Like, I I think, I think, like, just watching him over the years handle Delphi and, and Flora and other cases, I just think, like, you can tell he cares so yes. much. Yes, so. and like, most law enforcement officials do care very much. And I know it seems like nowadays in the news, we just hear of police brutality, police inactivity or bias there is that that does exist but in this case from what I've seen I don't think that I don't think that's impacted the investigation it probably inadvertently has but I think the racial aspect of this is mostly in how much attention it's gotten and not in the investigation yeah I'm like struggling because I feel like you've given me the whole the whole meat and potatoes of this case. That's all and we have. There's really not much. There's there was never this whole time. There's never a person of interest, any suspects, Mm-mm. anything announced. They have no idea who no could have done this. No, and I I I mentioned this to you before we even started recording. Like I wanted to get the both cases are on ISP's website and like the information for the Flora case versus what's on there for the Delphi case is laughable like the two doc yeah I like pulled up I pulled up the floor document and it's like half a page yeah again I do understand we have a lot more at least from what the public has been given we have a lot more evidence in the Delphi case like there's a lot more information that is public so in the defense of news outlets especially local ones the racial aspect is a question that has been asked and the disparity is a question that state police get asked. So why is there such a difference in public responses to the Flora arson and the Delphi murder case? So during a press conference in 2019, 
Doug Carter said his office really needs to sit down and speak to the whole family, as well as Rose, their mother, about the days leading up to the fire. He said they have not been invited to do so, but that was in 2019. And invited. Was, yeah. And that's what ISP is saying. Invite, like, I know. I'm sorry. Are victims supposed to invite police to talk to them? Like, that's their jobs. I'm confused by that wording. Yeah, so, so, I mean, there's a lot that we don't know, and I don't want to speculate, but... Maybe he means more of it wasn't an inviting atmosphere. Maybe. maybe. Like, if I, they, they didn't feel welcome talking right. to the... But maybe something like that. I don't know. That disconnect could, again, be due to race, because historically minorities and police don't have a great relationship so that's true it might take police taking the initiative I don't know if they haven't or if they have just outside perspective looking in so when asked about the difference in public responses to these cases Carter said they're very different quote it's because we don't have access to the whole family We have to sit down and have unfettered, completely transparent conversation with everybody that has access to the home for the weeks, months, and days up to the day when those four beautiful girls were killed. That's why. End quote. So I don't know if there's some family members that are not being completely honest or if police haven't taken the initiative. It's very much he said, she said at this point. So that's that's tough. And that's just it. Like, and that's literally just it. Like, I know. I know. So one thing that is similar in these two cases, the Delphi and Flora, the public's opinion of how the Carroll County Sheriff's Office is handling the investigations. So many are frustrated with the lack of information. So I I know in Delphi, there is, seems to be a lot of information, but it doesn't make sense completely. Sure. like, it seems like the information they do choose to release doesn't make doesn't relate to other facts in the case. Like I think in the Delphi case, there a lot of people are frustrated with explanations of the case. And then in the Flora case, just literal lack of information. I get it. It's hard as a member of the public to not know all the details. But what like we were talking with Delphi, it's to protect the integrity of the case, the investigation. So something you and I talked about before. The public has no right to the information unless it pertains to public safety, in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, Um, I agree 100%. So I have no right to specific details of an investigation as much as I want to know. It's not for me. doesn't involve me unless the police have reason to believe that I'm in danger or the public's in danger. So in this case, how can you help? So authorities are asking the community to call the Indiana State arson hotline. If you have any information, that's 1-800-382-4628. Callers remain anonymous. Police are offering a reward of up to $5,000 for information that leads to an arrest. As a former journalist, my advice to the family and to the community members that want to keep this case alive is just keep asking questions. Keep reaching out to ISP. Keep reaching out to local news outlets to get coverage. Just keep talking about it. Something to know, you asked about the smoke detectors a little earlier. Yeah. Um, I didn't forget you. So Rose and her attorney filed a civil case against the landlord in Hammond, Indiana, for not having working smoke detectors in the house. Rose was renting. Yes, Rose was renting. The suit alleges that Rose complained about a lack of working smoke detectors, non-functioning electricity 
electrical outlets and non-locking doors in the home before the fire. So you can't see me, but my mouth is like wide open. I know. I know. Uh, So the suit, the suit also includes a product liability claim against Whirlpool and Sears over a range appliance in the home. So I don't know if that's where they think the fire started. Yeah. I was going to say, did they ever determine like where the fire started? I think at one point they might've said the kitchen, but I don't know if they've officially said that. Yeah. I feel like I read that somewhere, but again, not a lot of information here. The suit lists the landlord company, Birch Tree Holdings, and two landlords, Joshua Ayers and Troy Helderman as responsible. Wish TV reports the legal team expects the case to enter a jury trial sometime this year. Oh shit. So these trials could be happening around the same time also. And that's literally all that I have in this case and to have four little girls killed intentionally yeah and not having any information at all pretty much is baffling to me it's actually like staggering to, i know to think about <laughs> the fact that the dash cam video came out on the day we were recording yeah and and i'm really hoping that because there's I don't want to say like a sense of finality with Delphi but because it's going into the trial phase and it's it's less of at least right now it's less of they're looking for someone and more of like they're they're, maybe they can focus on yeah they're in the criminal justice system maybe now with this I mean the video you said it's crazy it's very sad yeah and it's very sad I'm hoping that with that video out there now, that maybe it'll gain some more attention. I hope so. Just because, like, those little girls deserve justice. And whoever can intentionally do that to anybody, regardless of age or intention, that person's still out there. It's It's so scary to think about that these that people who do stuff like this and they're not caught they're just they could just just be walking around yeah yeah (sighs) we did well we did it we did it hopefully it recorded it says it it says that it's still recording right now but what if the audio didn't work i'll kill myself same our first (laughs) and only episode but Thanks for the three people that have probably made it this far. I know this. She's going to be a long one. She's She's going to be girl. She's going to be hefty. She's chunky. (laughs) As former journalists, we want to give credit where credit is due. For this episode, I got my information on the Delphi case from Indiana State Police, Fox 59 and CBS 4, WRTV 6, WTHR, Wish TV, and lawandcrime.com. And I got my information from the Journal and Courier, WTHR, Fox 59, CBS 4 News, The Indie Star, WIBC, and Wish TV. You can find a complete list of all of our sources in the show notes. Please make sure to check them out. Bye! Bye! <laughs>